Take your Bibles and turn to Job 1. All of us, and this is easy to grasp, all of us suffer, will suffer, have suffered in one way or another. But I want to narrow it down tonight and maybe go a direction that you haven't thought through too much. But that is that we suffer in different ways. Um, Even the lessons on loss tonight were different. Um, But we suffer in different ways and for different reasons. Um, Our afflictions are not uniform um, as Christians, nor are God's expectations on how we respond to them uniform. Um, God has different expectations in different kinds of trials, and therefore we have different promises given to those ones, or those, each of those categories in Scripture. So let me say it right off the bat. In light of that truth, different kinds of suffering, different kind of responses to suffering, and different expectations and promises from God for them, part of the responding rightly to suffering for a Christian involves wise discernment on which specific kind of trial you're going through and how you should respond to it. So it does matter that when you face suffering, or if you are facing suffering tonight, that you know what kind of suffering you're going through, why you're going through it, if possible, as much as you can, and therefore based on that, how you should respond to it. So let me give you the four kinds of suffering I see in Scripture. Now let me tell you, this isn't exhaustive. There could be putting it different ways. There could be maybe ones added to the list, but this is pretty general. But number one, there's suffering because of sin. Name somebody in the Bible who you said really went through a rough time in their life because they were disobedient to one degree or another. Sandy? Samson? Who? Jonah? Yeah. Someone else, disobedient because of some, I mean, suffering because of some disobedience or sin in their life. Yes, Dave. David, David. yep. Dave, yes. King Saul, you got that right. Ray? Ananias and Sapphira, right? So, and we could go on. That's just one. There are times when, as if you're a Christian, you will be disciplined by God, which could be level of suffering because of sin. Second one is we suffer because uh, for spiritual growth. God wants to make us more like him, right? So here we have Jesus, it says in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8, Jesus, though he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Now, he didn't go from disobedience to obedience because we know he was sinless and perfect. What does that scripture mean? Well, it meant that he went from one level of obedience to another. He would obey God, and it'd get harder to obey, and it'd be more difficult to obey, and to be totally committed. And he kept going, like he he was obedient to his parents when he was 12 and a child, and he grew, it got harder, more was asked of him. The level of commitment to be obedient was greater until he reached the cross. So Jesus grew, and God used suffering in his life to make his obedience even deeper and greater as well. Number three, suffering because of persecution. All you got to do is read the book of Acts, and you'll know that when we stand up for Christ and we witness for him in a pagan culture, that it doesn't always go well. And so there are times when Christians are imprisoned, they are 
tortured, martyred, and so forth because of their faith, and they suffer because of it. Fourthly, and the one that I want to key in on tonight, which I think the book of Job is all about, and that is we suffer at times because it is God's way of displaying his infinite glory and worth. Um, That's the scenario here. And let me tell you this, that is not a way that we often think when we go through suffering. In fact, people struggle with suffering and why God would allow catastrophic things or very difficult things as like Job went through or other people in the Bible have gone through and they really struggle, especially when it comes home to their own doorstep. Let me read an article, a little bit of a page um, off of a book on suffering I recently read and see if some of these lines don't sound familiar that you've heard before. One person's response to suffering is this, how could God let this happen to me? I've never been a perfect Christian, but I confessed sin when I needed to. If this is payback for my failures, why did it happen now? Why not when I was just a new Christian and still had a lot of bad habits? If it's for some sin I don't know about, why doesn't God make that sin clear to me? Is sin such a threat to God that he has to destroy my life for it? And if God is trying to teach me something, this is the grow one, right? To grow me as a Christian, couldn't he find some other way to do it without one of my children dying and my marriage collapsing? Am I really all that hopeless? And if this is all to teach me some lesson, he's not making it very clear to me. I haven't felt his presence in months. Maybe God isn't the person I thought he was. If there was any goodness in him, wouldn't he have guided my life differently? I can't help but think that the further I am from God, the safer I am. What reason could God possibly have for letting all this happen? How am I supposed to go to church, sing about how wonderful God is after all of this? If anyone else took the life of one of my children and ruined my marriage, they'd be in jail. How am I supposed to love and trust someone who does that? And even if God restores my marriage, gives us more children, how could I ever forget what he did to me? And what if he does it again in the future? How can I ever feel safe around him again? What do you think when you hear that? What do you think? Yes. Okay, their focus is on themselves. Right, so it's, it's a suffering, they, they don't see any what in it. They don't see any purpose in it, right? They don't see God's hand in it. They only see, well, they do see God's hand, but they only see what is bad coming out of it, right? What else do you think when you hear those kind of remarks? Yes? Okay, blaming God for things that they might have some control over, like their collapsing of their marriage. Okay? David? Okay, he could be tested by God, and he doesn't realize it's a test. A test, we're going to talk about that. Yes. No accountability. No accountability. Keep go, tell me what that means. Okay. Okay, they're not listening to God. They're just 
throwing it all on him and blaming him for everything? Anyone else? Yes, James. expectation like some I guess a lot of people think once you become a Christian everything is going to go smooth you're not going to have any trouble and then when they come into it with that false expectation and things starts happening they're all surprised and say why is this happening to me yes false expectation that's a great category they believe when you become a Christian James says that things are supposed to go well and when they don't the expectations they've had kind of make their life fall apart a little bit Job was, and you know who he is, most of you would be familiar with him, he had a great life going, didn't he? I mean, there's that phrase in chapter 1, verse 21, he gives, meaning the Lord, the Lord gives and he takes away. Um, Job spent seemingly up until this point most of his life on the, this side of the conjunction and, right? The Lord gives, and he had really experienced that. Look at the text in verses 1 through 5. He had a big family, seven sons, three daughters. You know, seven and ten are numbers of completion and perfection. So symbolically, he had a lot going on. God had blessed him with great kids, great families. They all met together. Um, The Bible says that he was a man of power and position and great wealth. So he he had a great family. He had great finances. He had all that going. He was living the life. And above that, he had great faith. Because he loved God, and you, you see later in the text that God himself, now th- you know that you've become a pretty good believer when God himself brags on you to Satan. I mean, that, I don't know how many of us have got that experience. I'm thinking it's not me or you, but maybe it is. But Job got that. Um, he was being bragged on by God. And one of the things that God bragged on him about was that he feared him. Um, that he was an obedient, reverent, obedient person who lived out the blessings of God in thankfulness and gratitude. Now, you look at verse 9, look at verse 9, and here's the meat of our text. Um, Satan comes, and if you read verses 6 and following, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a breakdown, it says, on one day that God held royal court session in the throne of heaven... See, you can't do that. So there's a royal court session. God has all of his messengers and all those assistants, quote unquote, who work for him. And one of them is the Satan. He comes in, the, the accuser, and he comes into God's glory council. You can read certain passages in Ezekiel 1, um, Revelation, a couple different places, chapter 4 and 5, and some of the prophets. And God has a glory council. And the way that he governs the universe is not just as a sovereign dictator, but he chooses to work in and through people, including human beings. And so God has this glory council of powerful beings that are very powerful, uh, angels, but not as powerful as he is. And they all gather together, and they all have purposes. Satan is one of them, and he is able to come in, and he has to give account of himself. And so God asks him, where have you been? And Satan says, I've been walking to and fro throughout the whole earth. And that is probably a very way for Satan to be as general as possible so he doesn't have to give account of all that he's doing. But his job is to, what, what? Be opposition, right? To anybody and anything who wants to follow and love and worship God. So he's been doing that. Now, now, watch this though. This blows your mind if you think about it. And I don't know if it makes you a little upset even. But you know in the text, 
Listen to this in comparison. If you read Luke 22, and just as Jesus' conversation foretelling to Peter that he's going to deny him three times before the cock crows that night. Listen to these words. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that when you, your faith doesn't fail, you'll return and strengthen your brethren. But watch what it says. Satan has asked for you. Now that is not what happens in our text. Now Peter goes through a hard time and, and a lot of difficulty and Satan was asking for him. Who talks and initiates the conversation about considering Job? Yeah. Satan's not asking. He's just being generic and vague. God brings it up. And here's what he says. Now, this is when it helps to know the original languages, right? He says, have you considered, <coughs> excuse me, have you considered my servant Job? Literally in the Hebrew, it means this. Have you set your heart on my servant Job yet? <laughs> in other words, have you thought about the fact that maybe you should be in opposition to Job? Right, you'd say like, man, that's one of my prayers this week from now on. God, don't do that to me. <laughs> right? <laughs> don't do that to me. But that's what he says. Have you, consider, have you set your heart on being in opposition to my servant Job yet? You say, thank you very little, Lord. I don't need that. But that, but see that, listen, why would God do that? Let me tell you, go. It wasn't because, and Job's friends get all this wrong, and even at times in the book, read the whole book for yourself, Job even thinks it's wrong. When he gets suffering to this degree, he thinks it's because he's done something sinful and God doesn't think much of him or doesn't like him or whatever you want to say. That is not the case. Listen to how God talks to Satan about considering Job. Well, number one, don't mess over it. He says, he's my servant. That is a very unique title that very few people in the Old Testament get. Moses got it the most. Joshua gets it. David gets it. There are just a handful of great men of God in the Old Testament that get called that. And Job is the, if you put chronology in the Bible, Job's before any of them living-wise. He gets it first. He's the archetype, so to speak. He's the model, the standard of someone who God thinks the highest level of. But that's not all he says about him. In fact, it's not even the greatest thing, as good as that is to say. He says, have you considered, have you set to heart my servant Job? And here's what he says, ready? There's no one like him in all the earth. I mean, we can't, I can't even say there's no one like you in Hamilton. <laughs> he says in all the earth, right? Now listen to this. There's a phrase that is, describes certain kings in the Old Testament um, Josiah, Hezekiah, Solomon. There's a few of them who get this kind of a description. There was no king like them before or no king like them afterward. There, there, there are a handful of kings from Judah that get that kind of description. In other words, they are in a category by themselves. They are unique. There isn't anyone like them. But again, that's only in comparison to other kings that have come forth in history. Job gets the comparison that there's none like him in all the earth. Did you know this? That outside Job and one other person in the Old Testament, that phrase, there's none like you in all the earth, is only used to describe God himself. So what kind of guy is Job? He's one that God says, 
the number one guy I can think of. There's no one else like him. He is number one. So listen to this. You, don't, you get all this stuff. Job doesn't owe any of this, and this is happening in the courtroom scene in heaven that he never is aware of. So let me give you the first principle. Know this, that when you face suffering, especially intense suffering, your story is not disconnected because your story, Job, is connected to God's big story because that's what's going on between Satan and God. They're having talks about what God is doing in this world and what Satan is doing to oppose it, and that's God's big story. And your little life and the suffering that you face is not random. It's not just happen chance. It's not, you know what it is? Your little story and your suffering is connected to God's big story, and that's how important God sees it. He really does see it. And then no, secondly, this, as I put in my, my notes, I said, God is not often, God doesn't do it that often, I don't think. He doesn't bring suffering into lives of his people because he's angry and mad at you. Now that can happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. But that is not, by and large, the main reason why. And, and I would tell you the other reasons are more important. But the one that we don't think about often is that the intense suffering, especially when it comes to the category of suffering and loss, is for the purpose of displaying the infinite value and worth of God. So Satan says, verse 9, does Job fear God? And the ESV says, for no reason. It's a word that means without consequences. It's a word that means without cause. It really should be, a better translation would be, and I think the King James or New King James does this, for nothing. In other words, here's, what, here's Satan's argument. I've seen Job, and I can't argue with you, God. He is pious. Let's put it in 21st century vernacular. Hey, I've seen Job. He comes to church to all the services, and he has his Bible there, and he's taking notes. And I've seen Job. He's involved in ministry, and I've, you know, I see him pray, and he's kind to other people. And, and he goes through a list, Satan says, of all the things that he can observe about Job's life. I, I get it, God. Externally, the guy's got it down. I get it. But you don't really know what's going on inside. You know why he does it all? He's pious because of the prosperity. He does all that stuff because you give him things. He goes so far in the next verse, in verse 10, he says, God, you realize this, you have put a hedge around him. And the word hedge is the meaning of a hedge of thorns or something to keep animals out of a garden or some sort of nice flower plate, you know. It's a hedge. It keeps out the things that you don't want in that ruins what's on the inside. And here's what he says. We'd say today, God, you put a fence around his life. You built this big, huge fence around Job's life, and no wonder he's so devoted and committed and pious. I mean, wouldn't you be when everything inside of his life is great? And here's what Satan says. Here's what you need to do, though. God, put a gate on the fence. And then open the gate and let me move into his backyard. And you're going like, okay, if God said, first of all, consider Job, he might have done that, but he's not going to put a gate on the fence and let him walk in the backyard and start messing with my life. God says, okay, you can. That's what he does. And Satan moves in, and God still controls him because as Martin Luther said, he's a lion, but he's a lion on a leash. So he is under God's sovereign control and can't do anything more than he, but let me tell you, God allows him in his life, 
listen, why would God do that for, in Job? Listen, why would God knock the fence down or put a, a, a gate in it? Why would God let Satan in your backyard? Or why did he? Let me ask you some questions. Do you love God for God's sake or for all the secondary blessings that he gives you? Will you or would you endure a relationship with God in which all you got out of it was your relationship with God and nothing else? Can you keep God's secondary blessings secondary in your life? If God took it all away, would you still love him? Augustine, early church father, said this, he loves thee too little, who loves anything with thee that he does not love for thy sake. Do you hear what I'm saying? Here, listen to Augustine. He loves thee, in other words, you love God too little if there's anything else in your life that you do not love in proportion or for the sake of God himself. See, here's what we're, God's looking for. He wants to know if you love him gratis. You know what that means? For free. Is there conditions on your commitment and your love for him and that you're worshiping him? Here's what John MacArthur says. God wants to know the why of your worship. It's great that you come to church and it's great that you say you're devoted. It's great, all those things are great, but God wants to know, and can I say, and Satan wants to know. He wants to know why. Why do you serve him? Are you pious because it makes you prosper? Is that really the first example of the prosperity gospel? I mean, really. Here's what a writer said. Listen to this. If we love God for something less than himself, we cherish a desire that can fail us. We run the risk of, listen to this, we run the risk of hating him if we don't get what we hope for. I have, I can tell you stories over the years of people who came to church all the time, had expectations, God took it away from them and didn't give it to them, and they no longer, it wasn't just that they stopped coming to church. They stopped believing in God. I could tell you of deacons, chairman of the deacons in my home church. That's exactly what happened. So I could tell you people who found Mr. and Mrs. Wright and it didn't work out for them, they thought, and their whole dreams were on that person, that relationship, and when that dissolved, they said, I don't think I could follow or believe in him anymore. You see what the writer's saying? You don't just turn away from God a little bit. You can end up hating him if he's not supreme in the affections of your heart. So the question, is your happiness in God do more? Is it due more to our being comfortable or committed to him. In verses 13 through 19, Satan unleashes and he opens the gate and enters Job's backyard. Three or four times, verses 16, 17, 18, I believe it is, this little phrase, and while he was still speaking, and while he was still speaking, and while he was still, in other words, there were four head-on collisions in Job's life, and they happened on the same day, one after another. One guy escapes and survives the catastrophe. He loses his property. He loses his animals. He loses his wealth. He loses all of his children. And, he, and eventually, in chapter 2, he's going to lose his own health. And even his own wife, who seemingly was just as committed as him, says, curse God and die. And by the way, that's exactly what Satan said he'd do. 
He says, listen, take everything away from Job. You know what he'll do? He blesses you now, but if you put him on the other side of the conjunction, ready? The Lord gives and, see, he loves living on this side. Put him on the other side of the conjunction and take away stuff. And you know what he'll do? He'll curse you to your face. And his wife does. Curse God and die. Great moral support from your spouse. God, listen to this. God gave Job every reason to end his relationship with him. Verse 12 says, he took all that he has, all of it. I had a Dodge Ram truck that my father-in-law, Chris's dad, gave to us and we inherited when he passed away from leukemia. And so we didn't have hardly any money. And so it was a pretty nice, it was a used truck, obviously, but it was nice. He really kept it looking nice. And I never had a truck before, so I was pretty excited about getting that. You know, not that I know how to do anything with it, but, um, but it was great. And so I'm, I'm driving it, and I, had it, and I had it here for a couple years, and I'm on my way to a Bible study at the Department of Motor Vehicle, Vehicles where um, Dave Brucolari worked, DOT, I'm sorry. And so it was, it's a four-lane street, and I'm turning, you have to wait to turn left. I have this big truck in front of me here, and he's turning this way, and I'm turning this way into doing something for God. Keep that in mind. So the truck's here, and so he starts to turn, and he, his big, the back end of his truck comes around. I'm turning, and his truck comes out, and I can't see, and I think it's clear, and I pull out, and like two seconds later, this car's going 45 miles, bam, and he hit me straight on the side of my, uh, right in the front of my car, and drives the truck, I mean, smack across the lanes of traffic, over the curb, and straight into this gigantic tree. You know, the smoke from the, the bag, the, you know, the airbags go off. I th- I, you know, I don't know the technology back then. I didn't know they had that in the truck even. So I'm thinking the car's on fire, and I'm going like, I gotta get out of here. And then I go, oh, oh, it's just the smoke from the thing, you know. So I finally get out of there, and I look at it, and I go, oh. You know, the first thing I think is, what happened to my truck? And then I think, God, am I not coming here to do a Bible study? I mean, Hello. And so we get out, the guy that hit me, he was all mad, because I, I came in front of him. So it was a, it was a nightmare. And so I had the, tuck, the truck towed away, and Ben Backus took it for me, came and got it. And so he took it to this place. I go, check it out for me. Tell me what it's going to cost to fix it. And it was a mess. A day later, not even a day later, he called me. He goes, I got bad news. I go, what do you mean? Is it going to be really expensive, isn't it? He goes, no, not at all. He goes, it's totaled. I go, totaled? I go, what does that mean? He goes, you can't fix it. It's a total loss. Have you ever been hit head on like that? You ever been and said, oh, you know what? My marriage, I think this is going to be a total loss. You know what? I get the diagnosis from the doctor and he says cancer. And you're thinking like, I just think my life got totaled. Or a relationship that you prized and valued, and you know what? It just goes down the tubes. And you're thinking, I can't believe that we've been friends for this long, all these years, and now this. And you go like, I can't believe, I can't pay for that bill. This is going to take everything I have. Total loss. God wants to know that when total losses come your way, will you still love him? Do you love him for him? 
or just because he keeps you out of those collisions. Abraham had one son, and his son had grown up. He's not a little boy anymore. He's probably got to be close to 18 or 20. It's the only son he's giving because he was really old when he got this son, (laughs) right? And God only promised him the one anyways. And God had already told him that Isaac was the son of your promise, God's promise. So this was it. And so God tells him this. I want you to go to the place I'm going to show you in Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer your son your only son. Now, when you read Genesis 22, you'll find three places, not one, not two, three. Three places where the author, which would be Moses, inspired by God, repeats three times, God says to him, your son, your only son, which meant he was everything to him. Spiritually, because he was a son of promise, he was his only son in that way. And God said, he's the only one you're getting. And then God tells him, I want you to sacrifice him. Now, I don't know whether he ever figured out why God, being God, would ever ask that of him. But he did it. Hebrews says that he believed that God could raise his son from the dead, which is pretty incredible seeing that no one had been raised from the dead yet. So it wasn't like, hey, watching Jesus do it a few times and say, oh yeah, that could happen. This is no, there's no predecessor to this. So here, here he is, and, and you know what he does? He goes right to the place, does all the thing God says, puts the knife to Isaac's throat, and is about to slit his throat like a sacrifice. And God, listen, God says this to him, 22:12. whoa, 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 stop. Listen to this. Don't put a hand on the son, your son, because, watch, now I know that you fear me. And now I know that you worship me. What does that mean? What do you mean, now I know? Does God not know everything? Does God have to see Abraham's sacrifice or attempt to sacrifice his son to know it? No, what is he saying? Now I know it what? He says, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son. You know what God likes and why he allows us to go through suffering? Because he wants to see, and others to see, the visible demonstration of how much he's worth to you. The why of your worship. And that is one of the categories of suffering that demonstrates our total commitment to him more than any other kind, I believe. is when God allows things to be taken away from you and says, I don't want you to withhold him. And you'd say, God, I give you this. I don't... You ask me anything, not this though, not this, take this and see, you'd say, oh, take this, take my job, take this, but don't take my spouse, take this, you can touch this, but not my child, not my health. See, Abraham didn't have any of those conditions. Job didn't have any of those conditions because he was equally faithful on both sides of the conjunction. The Lord can give and the Lord can take away and I will respond the same way because I want in either situation or scenario, I want God to know this. This is my response. I worship you. I worship you. And I worship you whether you took it all or give it all. I I worship you. I love the old hymn, Be Still My Soul. And one of the phrases that just has burned into my mind over the years, Be still my soul, thy Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. He can, and Job knew that. 
See, at the end of the story of Job, Job gets the same amount of daughters and sons back and, and may, way more wealth and power that he had before. But I believe this, that God, Job wasn't living for that, nor did he know that. And he certainly didn't know it in chapter 1 and 2 when he made these statements. What about you? What if God brings the fence down in your life? What if God lets Satan in your backyard? Question is, what do you fear him for? Why? What's the why of your worship? What would make you stop coming to church? What would make you stop loving him, serving him, giving to him, ministering? What would make you stop doing that? Maybe the answer is the very things that you're withholding from him. Will you keep blessing God when he stops blessing you? Will he be your everything when he leaves you with nothing? Do you believe that as long as you have him, that you can't have a total loss? I want to close tonight with this, and and I hope that you'll meditate. It's not a Bible verse. It's a quote from Augustine. Listen to this, and I'm going to put a verse with it. The man who has God and everything has no more than the man who has God alone. Let me say it to you again. The man who has God and everything has no more than the man who has God alone. And the Apostle Paul would say it this way, 2 Corinthians 6.10. The Apostle Paul says, and having nothing but possessing everything. Is that you? See, look at your life and think of the things that you have suffered and perhaps will suffer. One of God's purposes is that he might have you display his infinite value and worth by the choices you make and the responses you have to the very losses that are most dear to you. Look at it not as an obstacle, but an opportunity to demonstrate to the world how great he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example of Job. Thank you for the scriptures that teach us that you have manifold reasons and purposes for all the different kinds and variations of suffering that we might face in this life. We pray in particular for those tonight, and there are many in our family that have endured great loss lately. God, may you enable them by your spirit and word to see that this is an opportunity for them to say with the psalmist that your loving kindness is better than life, therefore my lips will praise you. Oh God, may we worship you. May we praise you. May we exalt and demonstrate your infinite value and worth by the way that we respond to the trials. May we live equally faithful on both sides of the conjunction that whether you give or you take away, we might say from our hearts, blessed be your name. And it's through Christ Jesus we ask it. Amen. You are dismissed.